1: your next stay find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com where travels come true
2: happy pride from tomboy x we just dropped our pride 24 collection queer founded queer run and creating size and gender inclusive underwear swimwear and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin visit tomboyx.com to shop
3: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in
1: History Class, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson.
1: And I'm Holly Fry.
0: It is time for Unearthed. If you are new to the show a few times a year, we look at things that have been literally or figuratively unearthed over the last few months. So today, we are looking at January through March of 2022 – uh stuff that crossed my radar (laughs) i had have this extensive list of hundreds of bookmarks that i go through to uh to prepare these this time around we have some updates we have a whole bunch of repatriations some mummy stuff and some viking stuff and some animal stuff there's lots of like little bits of of loosely related things uh, on Wednesday's episode, we'll have the edibles and potables and the books and letters and the artwork. And if you're thinking, what about the exhumations? Exhumations are always such a big part of these episodes. Um, we're in kind of a weird exhumation dry spell. <laughs> <laughs> no exhumations for you. Yeah, that we have an exhumation we're going to be talking about this part of an update, but a lot of the exhumations that I uh, I have, I have Google alerts that are related to exhumations And a lot of the ones that I was hearing about were about things like relatively recent cold cases where people's families are just trying to get closure. And I'm like, that's not really what we talk about. We're usually talking about the exhumations of, like, notable historical people or things that have to do with some kind of, like, major historical event. right? Not someone who lost a family member 20 years ago and is still trying to uh, find out what happened. That's a little bit different tone than we usually have with these... Uh, so, if you're waiting for the exhumations, that's, that's
1: where they are. <laughs> They're nowhere. See you in the summer.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, maybe somebody will be proposing that we exhume some, you know, particularly flamboyant historical character. Those are more fun to talk about. Anyway, uh, one of the biggest headlines this time around was definitely the discovery of the wreckage of Shackleton's ship Endurance in the Weddell Sea in Antarctica, We did a two-parter on Shackleton and the Endurance just a couple of weeks ago, in case you missed that one and are also listening to this episode, thinking, what about Shackleton? That's where he is. Already had two whole episodes. (laughs) It
1: was the Shackleton Festival. So, we are going to start today with updates. The one thing that got as much coverage as Shackleton's Endurance was the Smithsonian Institution's announcement that it would be returning most of the 39 Benin bronzes currently in its collection. Most of these objects had come to the museum as donations and were taken from Benin during the 1897 raid that we discussed on the show on January 19th of this year. So there are still
0: details that need to be worked out with this, including confirming which of the items in the Smithsonian's collections are definitely connected to the raid This also still needs to be approved by the Smithsonian Board of Regents, and when this plan was announced in March, they were expecting a final agreement as early as April, so it's totally possible something will have happened uh, with that between when we have recorded this and when that episode comes out. Regardless, though, the Smithsonian is one of the biggest cultural institutions in the world, so they're making this commitment is a big deal.
1: Also, in earlier installments of Unearthed, we talked about two different Benin bronzes that had been returned to Nigeria. One was a depiction of an oba returned by the University of Aberdeen, and the other was a cockerel returned by the University of Cambridge Jesus College. In February of this year, the Nigerian government returned both of these objects to the Benin Royal Palace.
0: Moving on, on March 29th, President Joe Biden signed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act into law. This law makes lynching a federal hate crime. So we talked about Emmett Till in our August 28th, 2017 episode called The Motherhood of Mamie Till Mobley. And we talked about the fight for national anti-lynching legislation in the U.S., which went on for more than a century in our June 4th, 2018 episode on Ida B. Wells-Barnett. Uh, At this signing ceremony, Emmett's cousin, the Reverend Wheeler Parker, was present, as well as Wells Barnett's great-granddaughter,
1: Michelle Duster. Back in 1929, according to family lore, an attendee at the Women's National Air Derby at the Cleveland Municipal Airport found a flying helmet on the ground, one that appeared to belong to third-place derby winner Amelia Earhart, including having the name A. Earhart written on the inside. Rather than returning it to its owner, this unnamed person gave it to his crush, Ellie Brookhart, hoping that it would impress her. The helmet later wound up in a plastic bag in Brookhart's closet, and eventually it was inherited by her son, Anthony Twiggs. It apparently did not impress her enough for
0: her to remember what his name was telling this story later, (laughs) at least according to how this was passed down through the family. So... Earhart lost her goggles at this same event, and the goggles later wound up in the Smithsonian. But when Twiggs started to find a museum that might be interested in the helmet, folks were generally pretty dismissive. The only information he had for the helmet's authenticity was the story that his mother had told him. Then last year, he heard about objects that had been authenticated by comparing them to photographs. So he took some pictures himself, and those pictures appeared to match photos of Earhart wearing the helmet after her 1928 flight across the Atlantic Ocean.
1: Twiggs then contacted an auction house and was told that he would need professional verification. So he contacted a company called Resolution Photo Match, which matched the helmet's creases, puckers, and wear to photos of Earhart. With Resolution Photo Match vouching for its authenticity, the helmet was auctioned off in February with an expected price of $80,000. It sold to an anonymous buyer for $825,000. Prior hosts of the show covered Earhart's disappearance. That was an episode that came out on June 29th, 2009, and that was updated on July 16th, 2012.
0: Next up, investigators have recommended that the search for victims of the 1921 race massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma, should continue. As we've discussed in previous installments of Unearthed, exhumations for this took place in 2021, and 20 bodies were sent for more detailed examination a report that was submitted to the committee that's been overseeing this work said that one of those bodies showed evidence of at least 3 gunshot wounds the report also recommended some additional excavations at Oakland Cemetery and scanning of other locations where bodies may have been buried uh, according to reports and people's oral histories our episode on the Tulsa massacre was most recently a Saturday classic on May 29th of 2021
1: And for our last update, according to a report from Boston 25 News, investigators are looking at a new lead in the Gardner Museum heist. Jimmy Marks was shot outside his home in Lynn, Massachusetts, on February 20th, 1991, in what was described as a mob-style hit. And recently, someone sent in a tip reporting that shortly before his death, Marks had been bragging about having some of the stolen artwork. So investigators have been trying to figure out whether there's a connection between the heist and his unsolved murder.
0: A few things have emerged, like that Marx met with Bobby Garanti on the day of his death. In 2010, Garanti's widow told investigators that he had passed several stolen pieces of art to another man named Robert Gentile. At that point, Garanti had been dead for six years, and since then, Gentile has also died. He passed away in 2021. It also seems like those two men met with two other associates not long after Marx's murder, but it's not totally clear if there's a connection there. This is kind of a complicated tangle of people, all of whom have died at this point. Uh, We put out an update of past hosts episode on the Gardner Museum heist on April 30th of 2014, and it has also come up on Unearthed
1: a number of times since then. Before we take a quick break, we have a couple of coin hoards that were unusual enough to get past our general prohibition on coin hoards. It passed the Tracy V. Wilson coin hoard test. First, (laughs) a badger has unearthed a hoard of 2,000-plus-year-old coins in a cave in northwestern Spain. That's something that happened in April of last year, but it made headlines in January after a paper was published on the find in December of 2021. This badger dug up more than 90 coins, and when a team investigated further, they found a total of 209 of them, dating back to between 200 and 400 BCE. This happens fairly often. The first installment of Unearthed during our time as hosts included a 12th century sword and skeletal remains that were dug up by a badger, and in 2016, we shared a similar find and noted that burrowing animals are a huge threat to archaeological finds in some parts of the world.
0: And lastly, before we take a break, a horde of 41 coins was found in Germany, and these are in a curved style uh, whose name translates into rainbow cups. This is a very long German word that I'm (laughs) not able to say myself. Um, The shape of these, though, is almost the shape of a contact lens, but made of gold, and also bigger than a contact lens. It wouldn't really fit into your eye. Uh, Nineteen of them are known as stotters, which are about two centimeters across, and the rest of them are quarter stotters, which are about 1.4 centimeters across. Um, These aren't stamped with any kind of design either. They're just this, like, smooth, slightly bowl-like gold coin. They don't look like what you would probably think of when the word coin comes to
1: mind. <laughs> and while you think of those, we will pause for a sponsor break.
2: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
3: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening?
3: It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex.
4: But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance.
2: I wanted to take control of my story and not be
3: ashamed of it.
4: And it was a history full of love.
3: The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again
1: was incredible.
4: And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I heard about a lot of repatriations at the start of this year. First up, in January, U.S. federal agents delivered two objects to a representative at the Iraq consulate in Los Angeles, California. One of these items was a stone tablet covered in cuneiform, and the other was a prism that was used as a teaching tool to help children learn cuneiform, which I think that sounds really cool. Both of these items are believed to have been about 4,000 years old. Uh, Somebody had tried to buy the tablet online and that had caught the eye of investigators and the prism had been held in a private gallery in L.A. In both cases, it's not totally clear how the objects were removed from Iraq, but all the available evidence suggests that that was not done legally.
1: In other repatriations to Iraq, 337 artifacts were returned from Lebanon to Iraq at a ceremony at the National Museum of Beirut. These items had been in a private institution called the Nabo Museum, which was founded by businessman Jawad Adra and his wife, former Defense Minister Zaina Akar. The museum's holdings included 2,000 items from the couple's personal collection, although they have maintained they were not involved in any kind of international trafficking when they built that collection. They returned items included cuneiform tablets and other objects that were taken from the same general area as the artifacts that craft store retailer Hobby Lobby returned to Iraq. It's a region that became a frequent target for smugglers after the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003.
0: Next, the United States has returned two pieces of artwork to Libya. These are Veiled Head of a Lady and Bust of a Bearded Man, Both of them were looted from the ancient city of Cyrene, and this area is a UNESCO World Heritage Site that faced heavy looting in the 1980s and 90s.
1: Veiled head of a lady dates back to the fourth century BCE and had been on display at the Metropolitan Museum of Art since 1998. It had been loaned to the Met by someone who at this point remains anonymous. Bust of a bearded man dates back to sometime between the second and fourth century BCE. It had been passing from person to person on the art market before it was seized.
0: Veiled head of a lady is really beautiful. Yes, it is. (laughs) Uh, Moving on, two Dutch citizens have returned 17 pre-Columbian artifacts to Mexico. These items were between 500 and 1,600 years old, and they were returned at a ceremony at the Mexican embassy in the Netherlands. Not totally clear how the two acquired the pieces that
1: they returned. The United States returned an assortment of items to France at a ceremony at the residence of French ambassador Philippe Etienne. This included five gold ingots from the wreck of the Prince de Conti, which had been offered up for auction in California in 2017. The ship sank in 1746, and it was badly looted after a teacher found archival documents that mentioned its location in 1975. There was also a gold coin from a hoard known as the Treasure of Lava, which was found on the island of Corsica in 1985 and was sold off without permission. And a skull taken from the ossuary in the Paris catacombs. That one was taken from an antiquities dealer in 2015. This was just the most, to me, random assortment of
0: right. things that one.
1: Uh, including the skull. <laughs> Here's some stuff you left at all of our houses, excepting things that people <laughs> took from your house.
0: The Rubin Museum of Art in New York City is a museum that's largely focused on artwork from Tibet as well as from surrounding parts of Asia. And in January, the museum agreed to return a pair of wooden carvings to Nepal, The Nepal Heritage Recovery Campaign had informed the museum these carvings might have been stolen, and then the museum agreed to return them after confirming that, yes, that was the case. One piece was part of a gateway arch at a temple complex, and it was carved in the 17th century, and the other was a 14th century window decoration from a monastery, The museum had acquired these pieces at two different private sales, and they're expected to be returned to Nepal by May of this year.
1: Several pieces of artwork that were looted by Nazis or forcibly sold under the Nazi regime have been returned or are planned to be returned to their rightful owners or their descendants. In January and February, the French National Assembly and Senate each approved a plan to return 15 works of art 12 of which had been held in the collection of the Louvre. One of the other pieces, Gustave Klimt's Rose Bushes Under the Trees, has been in the collection of the Musée d'Orsay and is the only one of Klimt's work that has been in France's national collections. Although the French government set up a special unit to try to track down the rightful owners of such artworks, there is still a long way to go. An estimated 2,200 looted works are currently being held by the French state, and an estimated 100,000 were seized or forcibly sold in France under the Vichy government.
0: In February, the Royal Museums of Fine Arts in Brussels also returned a 1913 still life to the great-grandchildren of Gustave and Emma Mayer, which was a German-Jewish couple who had fled from Germany in 1938. This painting is a still life by Lovis Corinth called Flowers, and it had been given to the museum in 1951 because at that point it, its owners could not be found. Now that they have been, it's being returned.
1: Next, the city of Seattle is returning about 270 stone objects to the Upper Skagit Indian tribe. These were unearthed during the 2013 renovation of Gorge Inn, which was the dining hall of a company town called New Halem. The town had been built on the site of an upper Skagit village to house workers during dam construction in the early 20th century. The items being returned are mostly tools and projectile points. This process has involved a lot of research to confirm the object's origins since multiple tribes and nations all had a presence in this same area during the period when these objects were used.
0: Chile's National Museum of Natural History has announced that it will return a Moai in its collection to Rapa Nui, also known as Easter Island. The Chilean Navy brought this statue from the island to Chile in 1870, and it was placed on display in the museum eight years later. The Rapa Nui people have been asking for the return of the Moai and other cultural items that are in the museum for years as well as for similar items and other museums to be returned. The plan right now is for this moai to be displayed at the Father Sebastian Englert Anthropological Museum once it is back on the island.
1: And on a slightly different note, before we take another break, about 30 years ago, a pre-Columbian statue was removed during construction work in the Mexican city of Tecambro. It became known as the Coyote Man of Tecambro and wound up in a private collection in Mexico. But under Mexican federal law, it is an object of national cultural property and should be protected and preserved. In January, the National Institute for Anthropology and History, or INAH, recovered the statue, and it is currently at an INAH facility for conservation. Once it has been conserved and repaired, the plan is to place it in the Tecambaro City Council's Community Museum. We're
0: going to take a quick break and then come back with some astronomical stuff.
2: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
3: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival.
3: That's why it's called Survival Sex.
4: But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught. A history of courage and perseverance.
2: I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it.
4: And it was a history full of love.
3: The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible.
4: And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: To close out today's episode, we have a few finds in each of a few different categories, and we're going to start with some astronomical stuff. The island of Motya, or also called Mozia off the western coast of Sicily, is home to a 2,500-year-old artificial lake. It's a bit larger than an Olympic-sized swimming pool in terms of its length and width, Uh, It has long been believed to have served as maybe an inner harbor or a dry dock for people who were working on Phoenician ships, but according to research that was published in the journal Antiquity in March, it may have had a completely different purpose, which is that it may have been a sacred reflecting pool that was used to make astronomical
1: observations at night. There are three temples arranged around the pool, which were aligned with specific astronomical bodies at particular times of the year, like the summer solstice. A statue of an Egyptian god associated with astronomy has been found in one corner of the pool, and an astronomical pointer was found in one of the temples. Both of those things have been cited as supporting the idea that this was a sacred reflecting pool people could have used poles to measure and chart the positions of different celestial bodies at night.
0: And for our other astronomical tidbit, according to research published in the journal Scientific Reports, an air blast caused by debris from a comet may have contributed to the decline of the Hopewell culture. That was an indigenous North American culture from the eastern part of the continent. There's evidence of a series of fires that took place between the years 252 and 383. Those fires align with Chinese observations of more than 60 near-Earth comets that happened at around the same time. Lead author Kenneth Tankersley is an enrolled member of the Pequot Tribe in Alabama, and the paper notes that multiple indigenous nations have oral histories that may also be references
1: to this event. Other evidence for the comets and the air blast includes a comet-shaped earthwork near what would have been the epicenter of the blast, as well as meteorite fragments and other debris at multiple archaeological sites around the Ohio River Valley. Moving on, we have a couple of surgical finds. In
0: 2018, a skull was found in a funerary chamber in northwestern Spain. An analysis of that skull has revealed evidence of the earliest known ear surgery. The skull was dated to about 5,300 years ago, and it belonged to someone who was between the ages of 35 and 50 at the time of their death. And holes had been bored through both sides of the skull— possibly to try to treat an ear problem that involved both of the patient's ears. There's also evidence of bone regrowth around these uh, bored spots, and that suggests that the person lived for at least a few months after the surgery was conducted.
1: And our other surgical find. A thousand-year-old funeral bundle in Peru has been discovered to contain a surgical kit, the oldest one ever found in northern Peru. It contained needles, awls, and about 50 different knives. The bundle also contained a ceremonial knife called a tumi and a metal planchette. Two frontal bones found with the kit also show evidence of having been cut using trepanation techniques.
0: Now we have a couple of things related to mummies and mummification. First, researchers in Egypt have used x-rays and computerized tomography or CT scanning to digitally unwrap the mummy of Amenhotep I, who ruled Egypt from 1525 to 1504 BCE. Although many royal mummies were physically unwrapped decades ago, Egypt's director of antiquities at the time left this one as it was back in the 19th century. Uh, Part of the reason for that decision was the wrappings were in particularly good condition and the mummy also featured a face mask that's described as exquisite. So at a time when there was a lot of unwrapping going on, this one remained untouched.
1: The team used CT scans to make 2D and 3D images of the wrappings, the mask, and what was underneath. They confirmed that Amenhotep I was about 35 when he died, but they weren't really able to determine a cause of death. They were able to get really clear images of the face, confirmation that the brain had not been removed, and images of an amulet overlaying the heart. There are also about 30 pieces of jewelry as part of the mummy. Although Amenhotep I ruled during Egypt's 18th
0: dynasty, this mummy was reburied during the 21st dynasty to protect it from grave robbers. This process included unwrapping and re-wrapping the body to address some damage that had previously been inflicted by looters. And the team found some evidence of multiple repairs to the body that were made during this process, and in the words of the authors, quote, "...this study..." may make us gain confidence in the goodwill of the reburial project of the royal mummies
1: by the 21st dynasty priests. Archaeologists have also unearthed the largest cache of embalming supplies ever found in Egypt. This find is from the Abusir archaeological site, and it contains 370 pottery jars, many of which contained residues from embalming materials or tools and utensils that were used in the process. These objects were found in 14 separate clusters, with between 7 and 52 vessels in each of those clusters. The uppermost cluster included four limestone canopic jars, which had been inscribed but not used. Next, we've
0: got some Viking finds. One of the most gruesome pieces of Viking lore is a bloody ritual torture method called the Blood Eagle, the blood eagle appears in several Norse sagas, but there's been a lot of debate about whether this was a real practice or something that was embellished or distorted or otherwise not totally representative of something that really happened. A paper that was published in the journal Speculum in January looks at a slightly different question, which is whether the blood eagle as described in these sagas was even possible given the realities of human anatomy and the types of tools and knowledge that the people living at the time would have had access to.
1: Some of the saga descriptions of this practice are fairly detailed, and those details are violent and horrifying. Here's the saga of Harold Fairhair, for example. Quote, "...he carved an eagle on his back in such a way that he put a sword into the chest cavity at the spine and cut down along all the ribs to the loins and pulled out the lungs through the cut. That was the death of Havdam. This
0: paper is titled An Anatomy of the Blood Eagle, the Practicalities of Viking Torture, and its authors argue that the blood eagle would have been difficult for the Vikings to perform, but still possible. However, there are accounts of this practice that describe the victim still being alive in its final steps, and this paper argues that victims probably would have died much earlier in this process.
1: Our other Viking news is one of the more frustratingly reported finds of this unearthed cycle. Scientists have used radiocarbon dating to analyze some birch tar that was stuck to a helmet found in Viska, Denmark. This helmet was one of a pair of nearly identical helmets, both with dramatically curving horns, which were most likely originally decorated with feathers and horsehair as well. But although horned helmets have been used to represent Vikings in popular culture, these helmets are much older. They date back to about 900 BCE, roughly 2,000 years before the Viking era. The helmet style also probably didn't originate in Denmark. It's very similar to rock art and figurines from Sardinia and Western Iberia, suggesting a trading relationship between Scandinavia and the Mediterranean.
0: So here's the annoying part. So many articles reported this, as new research shows Vikings did not wear horned helmets. It is clear from Twitter replies and whatnot that this was new information to a lot of people. Please do not feel bad if this was new information to you, but Vikings didn't wear horned helmets is not new information within the field of history at all. The idea that Vikings wore horned helmets probably traces back to 19th century costumes for Wagner's opera The Ring and a general mythologizing of Vikings that was happening around that time. It's really not even new information that these specific helmets were from the Nordic Bronze Age. That was generally agreed upon not long after they were first found in 1942. So uh, I found myself very annoyed by the breathless reporting of new research proves Vikings didn't wear horned helmets when it was first reported. And then I got to be annoyed again when I reviewed it all again to do
1: Unearthed. And now I get to be
0: annoyed a third time right now. (laughs) I don't know why
1: this doesn't annoy me, but it might be because I was raised on Bugs Bunny, who always had a horned helmet as a Viking. It's fine. You know, and there's plenty of depictions
0: of Vikings that have horn helmets now. If, like, if you as a, a layperson, not a historian, was not aware of all this, totally don't feel bad about it. But the just persistent reporting that it was somehow a breakthrough
1: historical discovery, I was like, come on now. I think probably that is more indicative of the knowledge base of the reporter, which probably reflects lay people, right? Like oh, look, this isn't the thing. They may not have done the historical research to know that had been found already.
0: It it was also, though, people who kind of cover the history beat for various. <laughs> and that was, I was like, come on now. Someone in this editorial <laughs> process raise a red flag.
1: Uh, we're going to move on to animals so Tracy will stop being quite so irritated about the Viking situation. Researchers have studied horse remains from 171 different archaeological sites and concluded that medieval war horses actually tended to be quite small. This is a little bit tricky since it's often not possible to tell whether a horse was specifically a war horse but the tallest Norman horse they found would have been about 15 hands high, which is about as big as a light riding horse today. It wasn't until after the medieval period had ended that horses started to get a lot bigger, closer in size to today's draft horses.
0: This is another thing where, like, the popular imagination of a war horse as this, like, mammoth animal doesn't, like, necessarily (laughs) line up. Uh, it's also clear that people bred horses specifically for different purposes during the medieval period. In the words of Professor Alan Altram from the University of Exeter, quote, "...selection and breeding practices and the royal studs may have focused as much on temperament and the correct physical characteristics for warfare as they did
1: on raw size." Researchers in China have found evidence that geese were domesticated there at least 7,000 years ago, which may mean that geese, not chickens, were the first birds to be domesticated. They used radiocarbon dating to confirm the age of the bones, and they also looked at the bones themselves. Four of the bones were from goslings, but the rest suggested that the adults were locally bred and about the same size, suggesting intentional breeding in captivity.
0: And lastly, repairs to the city water system in Rome have unsurprisingly unearthed all kinds of stuff, including multiple tombs, an urn, and a terracotta statue of a dog's head. This dog is very cute. It has just the very upright, very alert ears and wavy fur. This uh, little sort of statuette is similar in shape to decorative elements that were used on drainage systems, but it doesn't have any holes that water would have passed through. So it might have just been a cute dog figure for its own sake, which I love. Oh,
1: so we are going to have more Unearthed next time. But in the meantime, Tracy, do you have some listener mail for us? I do. I have
0: a, a short listener mail from Margaret. And I answered Margaret, but wanted to answer uh, Everyone, since it's a kind of a frequently asked question. Margaret wrote and said, Hi, Holly and Tracy. Have you ever done an episode about the Armenian genocide? Normally, I wouldn't suggest such an, I'm assuming, absolute downer of an episode, but the new Marvel show Moon Knight is getting review-bombed by people angry that they dared to imply that it really happened. I think most people's knowledge of the event only extends to knowing that Turkey won't acknowledge it. Thanks for all you do. Just left a job that had long stretches of alone time in my office, and you helped me stay awake, Margaret. Thanks, Margaret, for this uh, question. I answered Margaret, and now everyone. uh, We have not done an episode on the Armenian genocide. We did, however, pretty recently, uh, back in March Re-air our episode on Raphael Lemkin and the Genocide Convention, and there is an overview of the Armenian genocide in that episode because it really informed how he thought about genocide and the need for, uh, in his mind, an an international law to try to prevent genocide and bring the perpetrators to some kind of justice. Um, Also. Holy moly, the idea of people spending their time review-bombing Moon Knight because of literally two
1: words in one line of dialogue. Um, here's what I have learned, being very much in various fandoms. People will spend their time review-bombing anything if they get their knickers in a tweet. <laughs> well, and this is why I am not
0: actively participating in any fandom anymore, because that behavior, I...
1: Oh, it's it's not cool.
0: Yeah, I got to the limit of my ability to deal with that, and I was like, you know what? I'm just never not, not going to be in fandoms anymore. I will love the thing and enjoy the thing, but in terms of participating in some kind of, <laughs> like, community where people are going to shriek about everything they're
1: furious about, not really going to do it. I just find myself always going, when do these people make their clothes? Which I know is a very uh, weird Holly-esque thing. But then I'm like, when do they mow their lawns? Are their dishes done? Like, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's so much time and effort that goes into just this pointless expression of weird ire that I'm like, how are you having a functioning life? Are you? I'm worried. Please right. eat and right. hydrate, I guess. I know. <laughs> maybe that will make you feel better and less like you need to grouse it. Folks, for nothing? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. We have had the Armenian genocide on the list for an episode for a really long time. I'm sure at some point it will happen. Uh, I cannot say it would happen soon, in part just because at at this moment, we're working a few weeks ahead on our episodes, which is nice, because that means if we take any time off, we already have episodes there that are ready to cover it. But like that is the topic that I've been kind of circling around for for ages and ages. Um, so anyway, thank you so much for that email. Please don't review bomb things. <laughs> uh, if you would like to uh, write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at podcast at iheartradio.com and we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen
2: to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year